Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Hello and welcome back to Latter-day Contemplation. This is Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Well, Chris, uh, we're back together. It's been a couple weeks, at least for me. I uh, took the family for spring break and you and Shiloh filled in for me and I sure appreciate that. You discussed the brother from the other mother, so if anyone wants to go back and listen to that one, interesting topic to say the least. I just listened to it a few days ago. You guys did a great job. Yeah, that was fun. So... We've talked about doing an episode for a long time on one of the seminal Hindu scriptures, the Bhagavad Gita. It's probably the most well-known of the Hindu scriptures in the West anyway, because it's, it's an excerpt from the Mahabharata that gives a Western audience maybe an idea of what Hinduism is about. It gives them an introduction to yoga that is maybe not just stretching yoga, but actual like you know, practice of yoga, the the various ways of practicing the Hindu religion. And although it's a short excerpt from from the Mahabharata, uh, it's it's pretty complex. It's got some depth to it, doesn't it? It has a lot of depth. You and by the way, some some scholars think that this was added into the Mahabharata, that it doesn't actually come out of it. So there's that. We don't, we don't really know. But it is the most, it's not only the best known Hindu scripture in the West, it's actually the best known Hindu scripture among Hindus. It's the most beloved, this song of God. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of things are excerpted from the, the Mahabharata, and, and even the Bhagavad Gita itself has, has got various versions of it, depending on where you are in India or which strain of Hinduism you tend to follow. There's definitely been some some additions, interpolations, and so forth. But um, and, and one thing to say about that is there are tons of translations of this thing. And you and I have read various different translations, and you get a very different feel depending on which one you read, right? Sorry about the phone. I'll turn that off. Yeah, I'd like to actually uh, insert a note about translations since usually people ask me things like that. Which translation should I read, right? Uh, which edition? You know, sometimes it's not just translation. There's notes or commentary or whatever. And so I think, you know, usually as a rule of thumb, I'd like to look at newer translations because I think some of these classics need to be retranslated in every generation. And actually, this is, it's worth mentioning too, that this is, the Hindu scriptures are some of the oldest extant scriptures that we have. They're older than than the Jewish scriptures, right? They're really old. And so, you know, for me, they have to be retranslated in every generation. And in this case, though, I really love the translation of Sir Edwin Arnold. I'm not sure how old it is, but it is in the public domain. And you can get the, what is it, the Dover Thrift Edition for 3 or $4. And it's just beautiful, beautiful. I read chapter 11 of it out loud to my wife last night as she was falling asleep. And it is just unbelievably 
beautiful. Yeah, he does a fantastic job. I've read that one as well a couple of times. It was produced in 1899, and it's got... It's got kind of that very formal Old English way of speaking that, and it's a very poetic rendering. It's meant to convey the original poetry that was within the uh, Sanskrit text into an English version. And I I mean, he does a fantastic job. It's not like everything rhymes and there's perfect meter, but you very much get the sense that you're reading sort of like a song. So super interesting. Yeah, it does have a lot of rhyme to it too, yeah. And there's some other translations that I like. You know, the Ek, I don't know if I can say the guy's name, Eknath Eswaran. Eswaran, yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's a good, in terms of a translation that's, you know, easy to read, that has good commentary, uh, just the right amount of commentary, not too much, you know, not too little, not too much. You won't get much with a, you know, Dover Thrift Edition. That would be a good one. Uh, I can't remember the publisher on that one, but that's a good one too. You know, but I, I, was, like? I was surprised reading through the, the Dover Thrift Edition that, you know, the notes on the bottom, they are helpful because some of the original Sanskrit words don't translate one-to-one. So it's nice to have those oh, yeah. little liner notes. But I know what you're saying, and it is helpful to get a little bit more, uh, let's call it commentary, right, about what you're reading. Yeah. So you can truly start to understand what it is you're reading. Otherwise, you're reading sort of like a poetic uh, rendering of a of a war novel. And, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense without the the religious commentary um, put on top of it, which is why I, I was reading Yogananda's co- commentary. Another inexpensive edition I like is Barbara Stoller Miller's translation published by Bantam. And if I remember correctly, that one has some really useful notes and appendices or appendixes. I think both are correct. I don't know if you've read that one. I haven't. So, that, I mean, that's that's an $8 paperback, mass market paperback. So those are some options. And then, of course, there's Stephen Mitchell. I've mentioned so many times how much I love Stephen Mitchell, who started off by translating Rilke, whom you and I both love, and went on to translate you know, Hebrew poetry and some of these Eastern texts, too. Yeah, quite the scholar. So let's jump into just a little bit about this, this amazing poetic work and and give people that aren't as familiar with it maybe a little background to start off with, and then we can kind of jump into what it what it does for us, what it teaches us, and how we can use it, and maybe in companionship with other scriptures maybe we're more familiar with. So the, the Bhagavad Gita is essentially, it, it begins with this third-party narrator. And this narrator is describing, it very much to me anyway, sounds like Shakespeare, he, where he's introducing the plot of, you know, for instance, you've got the the Montague, what is it, Capulets and the... The Montagues, yeah. Montagues, yeah. Romeo and Juliet. Very much the same kind of introduction, you know. You've got these these two families, the Pandavas and the Karavas, and they're related to each other. Um, and they're cousins, right? And and there's there's a battle over over kingdoms and municipalities and principalities and, and possessions. And the in usual. this battle, yeah, the usual stuff, things of the world, right? And there are players on both sides of this of this impending battle that know each other. And and that's what complicates things right from the get-go, is that uh, I don't, they don't really want to fight each other, but they feel compelled to it. They feel it's their duty. And so as they enter into this battlefield, there are certain... Uh, characters that have that represent various 
character traits or personality types. And the main character of this is introduced to us, and it's this warrior prince. He's one of, what is it, five brothers, something like that, that's fighting in this. Um, and he he is the, the main character that we're going to be engaged with during our reading of, of the Gita. And to preface this, in the Mahabharata, which isn't necessarily, I don't think it's, I don't think it's talked about in the Gita itself, but, you know, Krishna is, is this, he's, he's a god. In, in his own right, he's understood to be a god, but in reality, he's an avatar or a uh, reincarnation of the god Vishnu. So Krishna, he offers to both sides, the Pandavas and the Kauravas, some kind of assistance, some help to the and he gives them the choice. He says, you can either have my armies or you can have me. And I, I, will, I will be on one side and offer advice and counsel and strategy and all this stuff to the person who chooses me, or you can have my armies. Well, the Kauravas, which is the, I guess, the enemy or the opposing side of Arjuna's tribe, the Pandavas, they choose Krishna's armies. And so they have this kind of overwhelming force. And Arjuna gets Krishna as his counselor. And so that's, that's an interesting thing just by itself. Right from the get-go, you have this dynamic where a god is offering to help both sides of a conflict. What do you think about that? That is interesting. And for Arjuna to end up with Krishna as his charioteer, God is driving his chariot. Yeah. Right. Yeah, That's and, and we, we're going to get into that chariot business a little bit as well because it's, it's super important as a way to interpret the text as a whole, right? There's Anytime for me, this is how I, whenever I read a religious text, anytime a number comes up, I pay attention to numbers because ancient societies always paid attention to numbers. They invested importance and significance into numbers whether it was a reflection of, of things they saw in nature or more mysterious uh, linked patterns that they saw or understood, they always put importance in numbers. And so when you have this chariot, you have it, it's being pulled by five horses, you know? And then, so there's, there's things that kind of tip you off that, hey, there's something else going on here. And so that's one reason I always pay attention to numbers. But to get back to the story, you've got Arjuna as, as our warrior prince and the hero of our epic poem, and this is written as poetry. And then you have Krishna as his counselor, charioteer, uh, help meet strategy, counselor, whatever you want to call him. And Arjuna has this very strong dissonance that he's dealing with. And that is that he is, his, his occupation, his vocation is as a warrior. But his soul is telling him that you can't, you can't fight these people. They're your family. Why would, you, why would you do that? And so right from the beginning is, is where we're introduced to the conflict. And so how do you interpret that, that conflict, Chris? And, and how, how does it relate to us? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, so you know, it's interesting because the whole story seems to be a story about war. And it seems to be... A, and it is on the face of it, right? It's a story about this war, about Arjuna facing off as a, as a warrior in battle against his own cousins, his own family. And he doesn't want to do it. He's really in distress. He'd rather, he says he'd rather die than, uh, you know, than to do that. And he loves and respects the people 
that he's fighting against. I'll read an excerpt from Sir Edwin Arnold's translation. Arjuna says, How can I in the battle shoot with shafts of Bhishma or Androna? Sorry, on Bhishma or Androna, O thou chief. Both worshipful, both honorable men. Better to live on beggar's bread with those we love alive than taste their blood in rich feasts spread and guiltily survive. Ah, were it worse, who knows, to be victor or vanquished here when those confront us angrily whose death leaves living drear. In pity lost by doubtings tossed, my thoughts distracted turn. To thee the guide I reverence most, most that I may counsel learn. That's fantastic, isn't it? That's really solid poetry. Yeah, it is. And so he really doesn't want to do this. And yet it is his duty by birth uh, as a prince, as a warrior, as an archetypal king figure to fight. That's his job. Uh, that's his, his station in life. It's his duty. It's his dharma, as it's called in Hinduism. And so he's going to get counseled by Krishna that he should do his duty and fight. And that he should, and this is, you know, the reason that I, one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this text, we've talked about it many times in the past about coming on the podcast and talking about it because we both love it, is what happened in my ward conference recently at church which is somebody came in in the second hour and spent an hour talking to us about how to be natural in inviting people and in, um, you know, in, in fellowshipping or even ministering. And I just thought, well, th- there's nothing natural about this conversation about being natural. And I thought about Arjuna. I thought about the Bhagavad Gita. I thought about Krishna's counsel to Arjuna. And I said, I raised my hand. I said, what if we did this like Arjuna? I, I had to explain a little bit where I'm coming from. What if we just, because Arjun is told that he should fight without desire for victory and without fear of death. So it's not about what happens next, right? It's not about winning and it's not about not dying. It's not about consequences at all. This is, this is ethically speaking, deontological, not consequential. It's about duty, not about results. And so he's told to fight without fear of death or desire for victory because it's his job. And so I thought, what if we did that? What if we went out and in a Christ-like manner, we love people and we serve them and we minister to them and we even invite them, right? But without any attachment to the end result that they're going to come to church and get baptized. That's not up to us. Krishna tells Arjuna, he says, these people you see before you, they're already dead. That's up to me, not you. And so there's sort of this arrogance in us, this, this narcissism that we think that we're going to baptize people or we're going to save people when that's not our job that's krishna's krishna's as an incarnation of vishnu is like christ right that's his right. job yeah and, and you know i guess it's it's helpful to clarify that the differences between what how we understand our religious tradition and how the hindus understand theirs i, I think it's important to point out that they're they're much less binary in terms of the the consequences the outcomes um things happen to them and they don't assign a good or evilness to them. They just say, you know, as you said before, these people are already dead. Whether now or in the long term, that's, that's not your concern. Your concern is to do your duty. And again, there's a lot of symbolism here that we haven't really gotten into or explained. But just for the purpose of the surface story, it is helpful to know that this, this binary way of thinking through all situations that we're used to in the West, as 
an inheritance of our religious tradition, probably primarily, is, is really not as extant in, in the East, in the Hindu tradition. Yeah, it's, it's not like, um, and the text makes it really clear that, look, the soul does not die. There's no end to life. You're just reincarnated, right? You're just going to, life goes on for the soul. Uh, so if, you, if these people would die in this war, that's not the end, right? It's not, that's not the end of, the, of their existence, right? Their existence continues in some sense. So we have this setup, right? This war, it looks like Arjuna is telling, well, Krishna is telling Arjuna to fight, but it's not this condoning of violence that we might see for two reasons. One, because of what you've pointed out, Riley, that it is that it, it, they don't have this sort of binary dual uh, way of thinking, dualistic way of thinking. And two, because there's a symbolism here. And this, isn't, this is a story about a warrior, yes, but the story relates to us in a personal way at the level of doing our own duty. And so it's really, it's interesting because it's seen as sort of this projection of martial virtue or glorification of martial virtue, which you, you see the same thing uh, in interpretation of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. It looks like pretty clearly on the surface, on the face of it, it's it's glorifying martial virtue. But a close reading of either or both texts will reveal that these are nonviolent texts. And that is really astonishing, considering the, the, the surface you know level reading. The, the face value of them. Well, and for those who maybe aren't familiar with the Iliad, it's just as easy to relate it to the Old Testament. Uh, on the surface, it seems, again, like a glorification of martial virtue. But I think the opening, the opening couplet here of, of, again, the Sir Edwin Arnold version of, of the Gita paints a picture that immediately should tip you off that what we're dealing with here is symbolism, is allegory, and it's meant to teach you a spiritual lesson. He says, this is uh, Dhritarashtra, who is the opening scene narrator. He says, Ranged thus for battle on the sacred plain, on Kurukshetra, say Sanjay say. So just that first couplet, Ranged thus for battle on the sacred plain. He's, he's already separated, somewhat, the, the sacred space that we're actually dealing with here in this text from the profanity of violence and war and, and bloodshed and the things that we deal with every day in a fallen world. This is different. This is the sacred plane. Now, I don't know what Kurukshetra translates to, but if I were to give an idea just based on what I have interpreted the Gita to mean for me, it's something like the spiritual plane, the plane of the soul, the inner the inner plane where we fight our inner battles. And so if this, this battlefield that we're alluding to here is on the inside, it's the battle we fight within, then everything else sort of falls into place and we can start to put the puzzle pieces in place and, and say, okay, well, these family members that he's fighting against could be a symbol of things within us that we're close to, that we identify with, but that are otherwise to be considered our enemies. Maybe they're personality traits that we detest. Maybe, maybe it's our, our identity that we've uh, adopted through growing up as children and into adulthood, and we continue to do all the way through growing, growing old that 
we didn't really have a whole lot of choice in the matter. It just, just like you don't have a choice which family you belong to, which blood you carry, this is your family. And you have to decide how you're going to relate to your family. Are you, are, do you reject certain family members? Do you integrate them? Do you uh, envelop them in your, in your embrace and say, this is, this is the type of person I want to become? And so really, when he starts pointing out these, these cousins that he has to go to war against, you can, you can insert any number of, of traits as being represented by each one of those family members and think, okay, I'm going to go to battle on this battlefield of the soul against that which is pulling me down or dragging me down. And how you fight that battle matters. Yeah. Kurukshetra is uh, also known as Dharmakshetra, which Dharma, I've already said, is duty. So Dharmakshetra means the realm of duty. It's also called the land of Bhagavad Gita. So it's this, it is this sacred uh, space, as you called it. And, you know, you reminded me, there are, two, there are two stories that come to mind, two quotes, you know. One is from David O. McKay. And, and he says, and this is, I, I won't quote him directly. I'm just going to paraphrase him. He says, the, the greatest battles that we fight are fought in the silent chambers of our souls. And this is just like what uh, the Prophet Muhammad said um, when it comes to, he's coming back from, uh, from an actual battle with his you know, companions. And he says, we're, we're going now from the, from the lesser jihad, which jihad means struggle, from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad. And the greater jihad, he explains to his companions, is the one that we fight against evil in our own souls. So he comes from doing his duty on the battlefield and, and leaving that behind now, that duty met, he's, he returns to the focus of fighting against his own demons. And it becomes clear to me what we're really talking about because the advice that he's given by Krishna throughout these, uh, these chapters, each chapter represents a, a different form of yoga. And we had Phil McLemore on a number of episodes ago, which was just an awesome experience. Phil is so well-versed in, in Hindu uh, religious texts and has spent a good portion of his lifetime really acclimating to that way of understanding and speaking and teaching, and it's, it's really instructive for us. But he, he drew a parallel between yoke, Y-O-K-E, as we understand it in the New Testament and its usage there. For instance, when Christ says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly of heart, um, he drew a parallel between that word yoke and was it, uh, it was yoga, the, the, the Sanskrit word for yoga, which is huge. And the meaning is similar, and that is, it's burden. It's it's the things that are tough. It's your it's your yoke. It's your burden that you carry. It's your and it's your duty. And so he he gives us an example, or I I don't know if it's comprehensive. I haven't read all of the Mahabharata, but there's 18 forms of religious observance here, or 18 yogas that he is to observe for different situations. So Arjuna begins each chapter essentially with a question. What about? Well, how can I possibly dot, dot, dot? And then Krishna answers with a form of yoga. And so that's why it's really such an important text is because it really outlines yoga as a comprehensive practice rather than just a set of poses and stretches, right? It's so much more than that. Yeah, the, the actual etymology of, of yoga it relates to the Sanskrit 
yug. Sanskrit is, you know, the our language is an Indo-European language, and it is related directly to Sanskrit. It is uh, Sanskrit's an ancestor to our language. I think we can put it that way. And so, yeah, the word yoga, it actually comes from yoga. And so it's related to this idea of yoga, these spiritual practices. And we get these different spiritual practices outlined in each chapter of this book. And they're all beautiful. And it's, you know, one of the important lessons that it teaches is that they're all equally valid. And it shows us that there, there are practices that are suited to each personality. Would you say that's true? Yeah, and that's a great point to make. Yeah, for, for a scholar, there's a more intellectual spiritual practice than there is for someone whose practice may be more devotional. We, we have different temperaments, different personality types. And, and, and as a matter of fact, there's, a, there's a, a line that reminded me of Rumi in the Bhagavad Gita that says that all of these paths lead back to me, says Krishna, right? They all lead back to God. So as an example, the, I'm going to take chapter 3. And it's entitled here in that, in that same Dover Classics edition, Virtue in Work. And then at the end of the chapter, it says, Here endeth chapter 3 of the Bhagavad Gita, entitled Karma Yug, or the Book of Virtue in Work. So every chapter begins and ends that way. It, it opens up with, this is the subject of the chapter. And it's, again, it's initiated by a question from Arjuna. So in the Virtue in Work chapter, this is Arjuna speaking, Thou whom all mortals praise Janardana, if meditation be a nobler thing than action, wherefore then, great Kesava, dost thou impel me to this dreadful fight? Now am I by thy doubtful speech disturbed? Tell me one thing, and tell me certainly, by what road shall I find the better end? And then Krishna goes into a three-page or so um, explanation of how work is in itself a virtue. And each chapter is like that. And so there's, again, something for everyone, and it fits personalities, it fits different circumstantial situations that someone might run into, and there's, there's a lot here. Quoting from Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Bhagavad Gita from, again, this passage that I say compares to Rumi, I often quote Rumi, who said that there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. The Bhagavad Gita reads in, in Mitchell's translation, however men try to reach me. I return their love with my love. Whatever path they may travel, it leads to me in the end. We all, as, as they say in the Islamic tradition, we all come from God and we all return to him. Well, one of the things, if I could point this out and see where this takes us, that I like about the book it, it is also that it builds upon itself. We've kind of adopted the Beatitudes as, as a heuristic for us in understanding scripture. And this this does a lot of the same things. You know, I mean, if you look at this, it seems to me anyway that there, there is a buildup or an ascension through the chapters to more advanced understanding of, of a spiritual practice. So beginning right at, not in chapter one, because that's the introduction of, of Arjuna's distress, but chapter two begins with the book of doctrines. And this is the yoga according to doctrine. Well, the Book of Doctrines is, is sort of like a Ten Commandments type thing, right? We, we have to have some kind of baseline from which to work. And Noah had this with the Noahide Commandments. Adam and Eve had this with the initial commandments in the Garden of Eden. You had to have some understanding about what God's commandments are from which to work. And then once you have a basic understanding of those commandments, well, then you go to work. You go to that kind of obedience stage. And we see this in religious practice, you know, of all traditions, 
is is they each have their their rules and then the first expectation is hey work the rules do the rules if you follow these rules good things happen and so the next chapter of course as i mentioned is virtue in work it's essentially be obedient do do the work here's the rules here's the doctrines do the work and then what's kind of the next stage in religion for just about everyone right it's you want to dive in deeper into the doctrine you want to you want to gain some knowledge that you can practically apply to maybe non religious kind of the secular parts of your life so there's the religion of knowledge in chapter 4 and it just continues to build the next is religion by renouncing fruit of works so you're now you're not a consequentialist anymore you're doing things for the sake of the good and it just continues on but by the end what we're really dealing with is an advanced almost uh spiritual master type level where you're renouncing the very ideas that things are in binaries that they're in opposites and he's pointing towards a unitary understanding of god a universal understanding that everything you see in and through all things is this divine essence this oneness of god and i i love that build because it seems to track for me my own spiritual development through you know when i first joined the church and and it was all about memorizing and understanding scripture and 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 then it was being perfectly obedient. And then it's, you know, I want to gain more knowledge about what's the background of this doctrine and what is it pointing towards, you know, and it, I, I tracked that same, that same level of ascension that we find here in the Bhagavad Gita. It, was that true for you? Yeah, I see the same thing in the text, uh, first of all. And that is, you know, we, we start from the bottom here from this, you know, it's, it's interesting too, because it's, it's all about doing your duty and 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 you go from this kind of rule based this morality based understanding to the higher level of a an experiencing of you know being with god being in the presence of god experiencing him this devotional practice at the other at the other end of the spectrum and yet like the beatitudes the first shall be last and the last shall be first and you start off at the bottom and you end up at the bottom again if we go all the way back to chapter 2 we find in uh, Sir Edwin Arnold's translation, find full reward of doing right in right. Let right deeds be thy motive, not the fruit which comes from them. So we're already talking about renouncing the fruit of our motives and doing our duty, doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Um, so even, you know, it's interesting because if we think about most people, I think in the way that they practice religion and, and from a moral plane, on, on a moral plane, from, from a moral perspective, there is sort of this getting something for it, right? Probably God's approval, right? God's going to approve of you. If you do the things, then God will love you. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, you have the mystic who knows that God loves him from the experience of being present to God's love, which, by the way, is always present to us, whether or not we're present to it. But it almost takes a renunciation of the fruit of the works, you have to you have to renounce that there is that 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 connection that consequentialist connection or transactional connection between what you do and what happens right the question is do you really think god doesn't love you unless fill in the blank or if you do x god will love you more than more period or more than someone who doesn't do x and that's just not my experience of god 
Yeah. So if we were to pull this back to our own, a pragmatic approach where we can actually use these principles, and this is probably the most difficult for me. I've got six kids. You've got a bunch of kids. It's, you know, when you're dealing with your kids, so often we teach them a transactional way of living. It's like you have to do the, the thing in order to have the blessing. We, we many times, at least for me, I can't speak for you, but for me, you know, my, my kids want something. Yeah. You're my right. kids want something from me. And I say, well, if you want something from me, you have to do something for me, you know? And it's the way that we teach our children. And I'm not even going to say it's wrong. I think it's just a way that has been uh, eclipsed by a higher way. And, and maybe they're just going through that stage where first they have to enter in to some form of transactionalism to understand how the world works before they can understand how God actually works. Because the world does work in transactional ways. It's, it's very much so that way. I mean, but does God work that way? Yeah, I felt convicted when you said we, we, the way we deal with our children is, is in this transactional way, because I, I have, I do. And then you tell me, well, there's a sense in which you have to, and that's the starting place, and I feel a little bit better. And then you realize that this is a false dichotomy, and that both of these things are true at the same time, and yet not, right? And it really is that, that there is this higher way and there's and there's a lower way, right? And I think that's what we see in the text, whether it's in this text, whether it's in the Beatitudes, that no matter which path we take, we end up in the same place, again, back with God. The idea is to get close to God, to return to God, to return to, to God from whence we come, right? And and yet there are different ways to get there. And we we sort of move and and when I say we move, this is faith I'm talking about. We act. We move forward in faith according to our understanding. And God is willing to accept, as the Gita tells us, whatever devotion we offer him, whatever love we offer him, he returns. He loves us back and he accepts our devotion and continues to pull us closer to him with that love. It's powerful. It's a powerful force. It's the force that moves the, the, the planets and the stars, as Dante put it. It holds together all of the universe. I love that you point out that God accepts all devotion, all offerings, because again, that reinforces the point that these approaches aren't right and wrong. It's not, it's not, it's not like transactionalism is evil. It just is a way and it has its place and it's, it's largely developmental. I would say it's used more effectively in the early stages of development, whether spiritually or um, you know, from child to adolescent to adult, a transactional understanding seems to make sense in a kind of closed loop environment like we have in a family system. But once you hit the big time and you're an adult and you're out in the world and it usually tracks, okay, I do this, I get this. I put in this work, I get this reward, but it doesn't always track. And so when it doesn't, then we're thrown a curveball and it's like, okay, how do I deal with that? And, and that's where adult understanding has to become more mature. Yeah, you know, it occurs to me, too, that we see the same drama unfold from, in, from the ancient Near East, uh, ancient Near Eastern Israelite and, and later Jewish religion, through late antiquity and the advent of, of uh, Christ and Jesus of Nazareth, 
that we see the same development, right? The same path, the same ascension, if you will. And so it seems to be a recurring theme in world religions. And that's one of the reasons that I find it useful to, because we, one thing we didn't say, Riley, is why read this text? We're Latter-day Saints. This is Hindu scripture. Not that we haven't dealt with this in past episodes, but if you're just joining us for the first time, we find value in taking a comparative religious approach because these texts reveal to us these patterns that are perennial, that are that are above and beyond any time and place, and that, that are, again, the ways in which God is speaking to us in different times, in different places, to different cultural sensibilities and in different languages to draw us nearer to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel very um, inspired when I read these books. When I, when I read the Gita or the Tao Te Ching or the Dhammapada or the Upanishads or whatever uh, scripture that relates devotion to a supreme being, I can, I can take that and absorb it and feel like, yeah, I relate to that. I mean, it's no different for me. Now, I find great value, obviously, in our LDS standard works. But as, as has been pointed out in previous episodes, there are other standard works, too. If you just go across the pond or far enough east and uh, dive into those religious traditions, there's a lot of value there. So, Riley, we've gone into a little bit. You, you've taken us through the text as an overview on this ascent, right, in the spiritual path. And, and we've gone into chapter, you know, we've talked about the, the introductory chapter one, and we've gone into chapter two a little bit. Let's go through the text a little, you know, and, and talk about, and just share some commonplaces and, and talk about those from, from each of the chapters to, get, to give the listener a better sense of the text. So the, the third chapter is on, the virtue and, on virtue and work. I have here, you know, so just passages. When I say commonplaces, I mean, when I read and a passage speaks to me, I copy it into a commonplace book, which for me at this at present is Evernote. I do this digitally. There's something to be, you know, there's there are arguments for doing this uh, longhand, and I know that I would remember these things better if I if I did do them longhand. But I also have an app that lets me review my commonplaces, uh, pulling them from you know from this digital format. I can do that, and I can search them, and that's nice too. Uh, there's a talk about battles and and within one's soul. There's this battle in my soul about which way to do this. <laughs> Although I did, it did occur to me the other night. I was telling my wife I could actually do both. Right, you can actually take your digital commonplaces and write them out longhand. I find that when I write things, I remember them better if I write them down by hand. I can even throw away. I can write myself a reminder and then throw away the paper and remember just because I wrote it down. So here's what I have from chapter three. The objects of the sense will stir the sense to like and dislike, yet the enlightened man yields not to these, knowing them enemies. Finally, this is better, that one do his own task as he may, even though he fail, than take tasks not his own, though they seem good. And so one of the things, there are a couple of things that are going on here. One is this idea, again, that of not having preferences, right? Of there not being just like just like there's not the same dualistic sense of good and evil that we see uh, at least, you know, in Judaism and Christianity at least post-exile, maybe influenced by Zoroastrianism, as we went into in the last episode on the podcast with Shiloh and Satan. There's that, and and so there's this idea, and, th- and this idea of not having preferences 
comes from Hinduism into Buddhism. And, and that doesn't mean, what should I say, Riley? It's, it's not, you have preferences, but maybe not to have a, an attachment to them. So I would prefer, if I'm a Stoic, you see the same idea in Stoicism as you do here in Hinduism and in Buddhism. As a Stoic, it is preferred to me that my wife not die. I don't want my wife to die. It's a preference. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Other than being too attached to it, if my wife does die, if my wife did die, God forbid, then I should be able to move on in some sense. Does that make sense? That, that I should be able to, to let go and let God, as, as we say in, in Christianity, which, in a, in a, which we, I think we can explain a little bit through this text by saying that what it means is not to mean that you're not going to do anything. You know, when, when there's something to be done and it's your duty to do it, the whole point, that's the other point of this passage, is that you do that duty and not someone else's duty, your duty. That's something that shows up multiple times in this text. It's better to do your duty poorly than to try to do somebody else's duty, and, and even if you did it well. But in doing that duty, it's not that you, it's not, again, that you have nothing to do when you let go and let God, but rather that you do it and you let God whatever happens next, right? That's not up to you. So if my wife were to die, again, God forbid, it's not that I shouldn't mourn her. It would be my duty to mourn her. But it, but that life goes on and that I must do whatever is my duty next. And of course, that would probably be to my children if it were my, you know, in my case, in my particular case, my duty would be to my children. And so as, while I may have a preference, I don't let that preference... I don't dictate to God that my preference ought to be the way things are, the way things are as God would have them be, and I submit. So here's a here's another quote from the Gita that I think, and this one I've I've pulled from the non Edwin Arnold edition, unfortunately, but uh, this one says, "You are only entitled to the action, never to its fruits," and I think that relates somewhat to what you're talking about, Chris. Is you know we're we're asked by God to do things. And doing them is an act of devotion. And so many times that's the word for that in, in our language, in our tradition, is obedience, right? And there's a sense in which obedience is acceptable to God. Just like all other forms of devotion, he accepts that as a form of devotion. The interesting thing is, in this quote, is the separation from the consequences or the fruits. So again, it says, you are only entitled to the action, never to its fruits. So what does that teach us that's just slightly different from maybe the tradition we're used to? But what it teaches me is essentially we can't be attached to those outcomes. It's exactly what you were teaching before, Chris, is that things happen. And this is one of those stages of development that we go through when we start to understand that our actions don't always lead to concrete ends. There, there's definitely, if you were to do map it on a Venn diagram, there's definitely overlap between action and fruits, but we're not entitled to fruits. And so that's the difference. We can pursue and we can act in hope for or in faith for, but we we can't be attached to the fruits or the outcomes. And so I, I like that. I mean, as <laughs> it, it sounds interesting to say I like that because I think most people like predictability. But in reality, we don't live in a world that's predictable. And so this helps to explain that we do things for the sake of doing them because they're right, not because of the outcome. Well, we're just not guaranteed any particular outcome. That's the thing. Bad things happen to good people. 
you can do all the right things and bad things can happen to you. And, you know, this is something else that we've talked about, too, that I think the that that Hinduism and Buddhism and Stoicism actually teach that there is we, we say bad things. We've told the Chinese farmer story several times on this podcast. We the, the point of that story being that you cannot actually know in our own calculation, in our own puny mortal minds we don't know what's good and what's bad because we don't know how things are going to play out ultimately in an eternal perspective. We just don't know. We just don't have that kind of horizon, right? We don't see that far. So rather in chapter four, we have now the religion of knowledge. And so I have a quote here from chapter four, which is, he who sees how action may be rest, rest action, he is wisest mid his kind, he hath the truth. He doeth well, acting or resting, freed in all his works from prickings of desire. It's related in some sense to what we just talked about in in chapter 3, right? Because this desire that, that it speaks of relates directly to preference, right? I have this desire, this preference for one thing or another, and maybe it may be rest, it may be action. One or the other may be what I desire, and yet, just as we said that God accepts all devotion, Either one of these is going to be acceptable to God, and whether it be acting or whether it be resting. I mean, look, this is, we could call this action and contemplation, right? Action and contemplation. They both have their place. And so, by the way, I don't think this text implies here that it doesn't matter which one you pick, pick one and stick with it. I think the point is that you can act and you can contemplate and that both have their place. That's how I would read it. There's a place for action, and there's a place for contemplation. And, you know, action without contemplation, as Al-Ghazali put it, you know, to have knowledge and, and not act on it is just insanity. And to, ha- and to act without knowledge is, is vanity. And I may have gotten that backwards because that, that quote's always befuddled me because it seems like it should be the other way around. And I think I gave it backwards. But that's the way. So, so we'll say that's me, not Al-Ghazali. How about that? That's the way I'd put it. I'm going to read one that has to do with service, and I love this one because it it actually teaches somewhat of the opposite truth of of what I quoted before, that we can't ever guarantee outcomes. But perhaps the one exception to that is that when you're performing service, every selfless act is a a guarantee of, of fulfillment in itself. And so there's two quotes here I'll read. The first one says, Through selfless service, you will always be fruitful. And find the fulfillment of your desires, because the desire is for someone else's well-being. And so that's interesting to me, because any time you sacrifice, this is the one area where you will always be fruitful in giving something up, in detachment. Yeah, notice that it doesn't say that you'll be fulfilled in that whatever it is that you intended for them will work out. Again, that would be attachment to fruit. No, it's just that you will feel good about yourself in having done your duty and performing that service. Always, every single time. Now, again, you, you, you might be distracted from that if you, if you have some kind, any attachment to the, to the fruit and things don't go the way you expect them and you won't have the full experience of that satisfaction because your satisfaction, you, you tied it to, you, you laid up your treasure somewhere else than in the action itself, right? And so if you wanna have that experience, all you have to do is desire to serve and serve and have that experience of having served. 
simple but profound. Yeah, I, I love that. The extended quote says, Every selfless act, Arjuna, is born from Brahman, the eternal, and, and Brahman's the creator god in Hinduism, the eternal, infinite Godhead. He is present in every act of service. All life turns on this law, O Arjuna. Whoever violates it, indulging his senses for his own pleasure and ignoring the needs of others has wasted his life. That's what you're referring to, Chris, where he says, if he's indulging his senses for his own pleasure. Okay, so there's there's the kind of service where you're like, oh man, I really did an awesome thing there. How cool am I? You know, wow, I'm a really charitable person. And he's saying, nope, you've wasted it. You've wasted your life giving service to yourself because that's who you were really serving in that act. And so to continue, but those who realize the self are always satisfied. And the self is capitalized here. The self in Hinduism is the God within or Atman. Your true self. So those who, your true self, those who realize the true self are always satisfied. Having found the source of joy and fulfillment, they no longer seek happiness from the external world. They have nothing to gain or lose by any action. Neither people nor things can affect their security. Strive constantly to serve the welfare of the world. By devotion to selfless work, one attains the supreme goal of life. Do your work with the welfare of others always in mind. It's a great quote. I love this book. (laughs) Chapter five is about, and I love, by the way, how there's always a turnaround. You know, this, this doesn't in any sense contradict what I said. It's just that there's this catch, right? That that if I'm doing it so that I can be self-satisfied, I said that you would be satisfied with yourself. But if you're doing it so that you can be satisfied with yourself, then again, you've attached to an outcome and you've gone wrong. So chapter five deals with religion by renouncing fruit of works, which is interesting that it's entitled that way because we've already been dealing with that all along. As I said, there's a progression here. And the commonplace I have from chapter five, chapter five is... Thus go the rishis unto rest, who dwell with sins effaced, with doubts at end, with hearts governed and calm. Glad and all good they live, nigh to the peace of God, and all those live who pass their days exempt from greed and wrath, subduing self and senses, knowing the soul. And a a rishi is a Hindu saint. And so thinking about that top line, thus go the rishis unto rest, and bringing it all the way down to the bottom line, subduing self, this is the lowercase self, the false self, subduing the false self and senses, meaning that you're not going to be caught up in pleasing your senses, knowing the soul with a capital S back to the true self, that the way to know the true self, the way to rest in God within you is to subdue the self, that, low, that false self and the senses and to be present to the reality of Atman within you to use the Hindu term or to the true self or to the kingdom of God that is within you as Christ put it. So your, your last quote was from chapter five. I'm going to do one from chapter six. And then in the interest of time, maybe we'll jump ahead a little bit. But uh, here's one that I like out of chapter six. The sovereign soul of him who lives self-governed and at peace is centered in itself, taking alike pleasure and pain, heat, cold, glory, and shame. He is the yogi, He is yukta, glad, with joy of light and truth, dwelling apart upon a peak, with senses subjugate, whereto the clod, the rock, the glistering gold show all as one. 
By this sign is he known, being of equal grace to comrades, friends, chance-comers, strangers, lovers, enemies, aliens, and kinsmen, loving all alike, evil or good. To me, that just it causes me to reflect on Christ and his teachings about loving your enemy and, and not having a, a preference for, for creation, for God's creations. I mean, all are alike unto him, all are brothers and sisters. There's no black or white bond or free. All are welcome to come unto him, and all should be welcome to come unto us and be treated equally well. And so I love that. Again, it, he's what Krishna here is trying to implore Arjuna to do is to set aside his own preferences in in preference for God's preferences, which is not a whole lot of preference. <laughs> God loves all. And so he's really he's really imploring him to see through his true self eyes, that God within, and accept all. At the same time you point out that that there is no that God is no respecter of persons. I think I can put it in those terms. In that same sense, as we've said, the, the Gita teaches us that God accepts all forms of devotion. And so here's another quote from chapter 6 that, that, that sort of expresses that and adds to it. He who should fail, desiring righteousness, cometh at death unto the region of the just, dwells there measureless years, and being born anew, beginneth life again in some fair home among the mild and happy. Which means, if you tried and failed, but you tried, if your desire is for righteousness, then your desire is counted as righteousness by God. He accepts that desire, that intent of your heart. God looks upon the intent, the intent of the heart. And so again, if the actions and their outcomes aren't where it's at, but, but fulfilling your duty is, and you have a desire to fulfill your duty, then your desire counts. And we, you know, this is, this is something that's not foreign to us as Christians. You know, I think in terms of when it comes to, I'm thinking of politics, actually, not, not morality, not ethics, but politics in America, at least we have this sort of utilitarian policy making. When it comes to policy making, we're utilitarian. We're looking at the greatest good for the greatest number. It is the case that we could come up with a speed limit, Riley, that would that would ensure that there are no automobile accidents. And I can tell you what it is. It's zero miles per hour, right? But so we, we actually, policymakers know how many deaths there will be at each speed limit, on average at least. And we choose, we, we choose to allow that there will be a certain number of deaths because of the benefit of being able to move around in our cars. And because, listen, you know, we came up with the car in the first place because the um, horse dung was piling up in the streets and it was a threat to our, to our health. So now we're dealing with carbon monoxide. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But when it comes to our, when it comes to our jurisprudence, when it comes to judging those who commit crimes, we have in mind this Christian idea that your intent counts. We don't consider it the same to have accidentally killed a man, homicide. Uh, than to have premeditated killing a man, murder. So we have this idea that, 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 that it counts. What's in your heart counts, that your intention matters. And this is the teaching, I think, of the text in this case. Yeah, there was recently a case in the news, and I, I don't honestly read the news that much, but this one, for some reason, caught my eye. 
the case recently of a nurse who uh, someone came in with some kind of distress and was and was treated with a medication. It turned out to be the wrong medication for that person, and that person died. And a jury just recently convicted this nurse of negligent homicide. And it, the reason why it was even news in the first place was because we do have this tradition, as you mentioned, of really putting a lot of importance on the idea of intent. She obviously didn't intend to kill this person and yet was convicted in this specific case. And so, again, the reason why that's even newsworthy is because it kind of flies against our sensibilities when it comes to how we treat people in terms of jurisprudence. You know, she didn't mean to kill somebody, but she got convicted anyway. Yeah, that's terrible. And and this is, as humans, we have this sensibility. Imagine a God, a just God. Thank God for a just God. I know I need one. One who will look upon the intent of my heart. Because, you know, honestly, Riley, I struggle. I try and I fail. But I'm really trying. And I take solace in the knowledge. I'm not. It's not that I'm giving myself a pass. Believe me, I beat myself up every day. No one's harder on me than I am. And yet once in a while I remember, you know what? God sees that you're trying. And he will respect that. He will. He's not a respecter of persons, right? That's not what I'm saying. He will honor me in honoring him. So Riley, that's, that takes us only, what, halfway through the book, just in sharing some commonplaces. This is such a rich text, and we've only shared just a, you know one or two commonplaces, one each from each chapter, and we only got halfway through. Maybe this is something we should come back to. Yeah, I think that would, that would be better. I know that I, I myself tend to reread this book up to half a dozen times a year. I love this book. Riley, it's been good to have you back with me and to share in this discussion of this uh, book that we uh, both love. Do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, I would love to hear listeners' thoughts on the Gita and their experiences with it. A, a number of our friends that we run in circles with and listen to the show occasionally have have uh, read it extensively and have thoughts about it, and I would love to hear some of that feedback. So you can hit us on our Facebook page, which is Latter-day Peace Studies, and so you can you can subscribe on that page and uh, you can also find us on messenger and if you're looking for the podcast um, or if you've you've obviously found it at this point we would love to hear back from you your feedback on on these shows and what connects for you so a little like comment subscribe um, to use the <laughs> the common YouTube parlance but uh, we, we really want to hear from you we want to know if you're enjoying the program and if there's anything that we could do that would be um, really impactful for you. And thanks to my son, Christian, for editing the podcast. Thank you, son. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this, uh, this particular episode is going to be a little, bit of, a little bit of a challenge. We had some interruptions along the way. So thanks, Christian. We really appreciate you. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Have a great week, everyone.